Uh, Please remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. Uh, We're continuing our series on James. We're on James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. Uh, Before we, I read that for us. Um, I'm going to read a famous passage. I think that many of you know. Proverbs 16, verse 9. Proverbs 16, verse 9. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is God's holy, infallible, and abiding word. Uh, Give your full attention to it. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Let's turn now to James 4, beginning in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, You might be thinking this after reading our text. So let me open with this. On the surface, it seems, it doesn't seem like the two paragraphs that we read um, belong together. One paragraph is about judging other people, and the other paragraph is about presuming to know or control the future. They don't seem to flow, Uh, but I think they do go together. There's a convergence between the two, and it's that under the surface is the idea that we can take God's place, that we can rule uh, as He rules, that we can be in control as He is in control. And so this morning, our, our big idea is simply this, judging our neighbor and presuming to control the future rejects God's rightful rule over us. Judging our neighbor and presuming to control the future rejects God's rightful rule over us. Uh, James starts by literally telling us not to talk down to each other. 
That's what the ESV, if you have that translation, is getting at when it says, do not speak evil against one another. Uh, if this isn't practical, I don't know what is. Because we know we do this all the time. We love taking the posture of superiority and dominance against each other. And so when we use language, whether we make it verbal or we say it in our heads to talk down to other people, we are putting ourselves above them. That's what we are doing when we falsely accuse others in public or when we covertly grumble against them, when we gossip or when we slander. We are denying people of the dignity they deserve as human beings made in the image of God. It's a refusal to love our neighbors, which, according to James, is the royal law. I mean, no wonder over and over again uh, in the Bible, the Bible warns us about talking down to other people. Israel gives us a good picture of what this looks like. Uh, And James knows we are just like them. We talked about this passage earlier in Sunday school. But in Numbers 21, we're told that the people became impatient on the way to the promised land. Uh, That's typically uh, when we talk down to other people, isn't it? When we are impatient. When we think our way is better and somebody else is doing it wrong. We talk down to other people when we are impatient. Uh, And here's what verse 5 of Numbers 21 tells us. And the people spoke against or talked down to God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. I mean, what are, what are they doing? They're putting themselves over Moses and even over God. Isn't that heinous? I want us to be clear though. Is James saying we shouldn't be discerning? That we shouldn't make moral judgments about people's behaviors? That's not what James is talking about. Because we're called to do that, right? Remember, James is a book about wisdom. It's a book to make us wise. And a wise person is a discerning person. And James himself has been making moral judgments throughout his letter. He's able to separate what is right and what is wrong. And so he's not telling us that we shouldn't be discerning. I want you to notice something. Does James actually say anything about the person who is being judged? No. We don't know if he's right or if he's wrong. If his behavior is good or is bad. Because that's not James's point. His point is the way we respond to that other person. It's when we make a moral judgment about them and what they've done, but then we do something beyond that. We start making assumptions about their character, about what kind of person he is, and we bracket him as if his one action defines his entire identity. But then we do something even more than that. We give ourselves permission to talk down to him and we broadcast it. We tell other people how bad that person really is. That's called slander. 
Let me tell you, we never have the right to talk down to anyone. It doesn't matter what they've done or how many times they've done it. Because so long as they have God's image in them, they still deserve to be treated with dignity. I like Eugene Peterson's translation of this passage. He says, Don't badmouth each other, friends. Don't use your mouth as an instrument to tear down each other. Uh, And remember what James said about the tongue. It's a small member, but it's powerful enough to destroy everything in its path. It even destroys the person who is using it. When you talk down to other people, it doesn't only put you over them. It also puts you over the law. Because then you're judging the law. Which means you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Verse 11. Which is the same thing as not being a doer of the word. Think about it. What kinds of people think they are over the law? Shouldn't be people in the church. No, it's, it's the criminals and the corrupt politicians that think they can get away with it. But before God, that's how we're acting like when we judge our brothers and our sisters. And here's the thing. When you behave like you're above the law, deep down you believe it doesn't apply to you. Tell me that isn't arrogant. How do you talk smack about other people when you yourself fail over and over again to keep the law? I mean, we're going to see this in just a minute, but it's as arrogant as thinking you can control the future. Judging your brother is unmitigated pride. It's crucifying him because he has a speck in his eye when you have a log in yours. It's a claim. It's to claim what rightly belongs to God. We are usurping His right to rule over us when we judge each other. But James says, there's only one lawgiver and judge. Verse 12. Or more literally, one is the lawgiver and judge. Uh, James is alluding to the Shema here. It's, it's that prayer uh, that uh, Jews say three times a day. His audience would have been really familiar with this. You know, it's, 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 it's here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, this is an affirmation of God's oneness, His unique identity. It sets Him apart from the pantheons of gods in the ancient world and in our world. For James, God is the only one who's truly above the law because He's the lawgiver. He's the one who made the law. Isaiah puts it this way, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. And so the job of judge and lawgiver is already taken. That's why to judge others is an attempt to usurp the throne of God. But we've been trying to play judge since the Garden of, since the Garden of Eden, haven't we? We've been trying to kick God off His throne. Um, we want to subjugate Him and others to, to our will. I mean, we want to judge, but not be judged. 
I mean, that's pride. With this kind of pride, James goes for the juggler. He says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? What audacity do you have to take God's place? What gall, what arrogance. Are you like the one God? Can you possibly sit on the throne? Can you save like Him? Can you destroy like Him? Who are you? If God is God, if He is the lawgiver, if He's the one who commands, love your neighbor as yourself, then who in the world are you to judge your neighbor? I mean, what's going on in our hearts when we judge each other anyways? Do we not feel contempt for each other? Do we not feel morally superior to each other? But I wonder what would happen if we let the reality that God is our only judge enter our hearts. Don't you think that changes everything? Don't you think it will change the way we make judgments about other people? Instead of standing over them in judgment, we can stand beside them. Instead of taking a posture of domination, we can stand, we can take a posture of solidarity. Because guess what? We fail just like our neighbor. And so this is where James reorients his focus uh, from judging others to planning uh, for the future. In verses 13 through 17. Uh, beginning in verse 13, James is warning the merchants in his congregation. Uh, merchants were people who would travel to sell and trade stuff to make money. They're business people. Uh, many of you are involved in business. Uh, you either own one or you work for one, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. Uh, but James is not critiquing uh, partaking in business in general or even making money. We see godly people in the Bible doing this. Uh, Joseph was a governor. Paul was a tent maker. Peter was a fisherman. Jesus was a carpenter. You know, jobs are actually gifts from God. They actually help us put food on the table. So why is James so worked up? The answer is in what these merchants say. Because it reveals what they really think about themselves and God's place in their lives. They say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You see, these people think they're in control. They're in control of their future. They're in control of time. Today or tomorrow, we'll spend a year there. They're in control of their place in the world. We'll go into such a such a town. And they think they're in control of their work and its outcome. We'll trade and make a profit. You see why James is up in arms. Excuse me. Because they're planning their future without God. They're the leading roles of their plays. It's as if God is an extra or something, if He's there at all. 
But whose business are we really doing if God is not in our business? To plan the future apart from God is practical atheism. We say we love God, that we know Him, we go to church every Sunday, but if we look at our future apart from Him, we're saying that He doesn't even exist. Notice the centrality of money in their plan. It's to make profit. You see, making money is their real goal. Self-gain is the purpose of their business. You notice that there's not a hint of using their wealth for other people, to help other people, right? Because, because it's all about them, what they can earn and what they can gain. And to be honest, I think some of us, that's become our goal too. Because our culture teaches us to devote ourselves to riches and success. It's everywhere you turn. Turn on your TV sometimes. What are commercials all about? You know, the happy ones are the rich ones. The ones with status and appeal. But that's an altogether different gospel, isn't it? That's not the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of Uncle Sam. Again, James is not against making money. We need it to put food on our table, to pay our rent and whatever else. And he's not, a, he's not even against planning for the future. What he's against is arrogantly thinking that we can control it. Instead of saying, we'll make money here and there tomorrow, uh, today, tomorrow, or five years from now, we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see the difference. That's a humble posture because it relinquishes control. It's to wave our hands before God and say, I surrender. My future belongs to you. Then, only then can making money be an act of faith. Then we can say with Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. God, I'm going to plan. That's just part of what it means to be human, right? We think about the future. But, but I submit my plan and its outcome to you. Because I know that whatever happens to me, you are good. You are for me and not against me. That's the kind of future plan making that God wants from us. And then we can acknowledge with the sage of Proverbs 16, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. What this means is that we need to learn to live within our limitations. Because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, do we? Let alone 5, 10, 20 years from now. You know, 2020 has blindsided all of us. You know, it's like that quarterback that didn't see, see the linebacker, you know, coming and he just gets tackled without seeing him. 2020 has done that to us. It's been a crazy year. There's global pandemic, months of isolation, social distancing, social unrest, divisive election, and the year isn't even over yet. I wonder what's next. It's a good thing those murder hornets didn't, <laughs> didn't pan out, huh? But if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that, 
that we don't know the future. And we certainly can't control it. So we can't think and act like we do. For James, that is evil boasting. Because it's taking pride in yourself, in your abilities and your accomplishments. This is what James is talking about in verse 16, where he says, As it is, you you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Uh, Thinking you can control tomorrow is as arrogant as thinking we can play judge over other people. And so James has to remind us who we are. We're not God. We're not in control of our future. We're mortal creatures who are only here for a little while. We're made from dirt. We're a bunch of dirt bags, right? We're like a mist that's here one moment and gone the next. Life is short and we're not promised tomorrow. Beloved, the sooner we acknowledge that, the better off we'll be. Uh, Moses actually calls it having a heart of wisdom. He prayed this in Psalm 90. Uh, Teach us to number our days, number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Our days are limited. I know for many of you, you think that your days will never come to an end, but they will. You only have so many of them. But how does considering the shortness of life make us wise? Well, because it gives us perspective. It reminds us that we don't have mastery over our future. That we need to, re- that we need to rely on God to provide for us. Every step of the way, we need Him. Isn't that the fear of the Lord? But it, sh- it should also reframe what's important to us. Because if our life is but a mist, it's here today and gone tomorrow, then what is money? What is your comfort and your pleasure? What is your self-gain? What is your status? Such things are more transient than your own life. They're here today, and then they're gone tomorrow. You can't even keep them at the end of the day. When we truly know that life is short then we will value what God values. And what does God value? Laboring for the sake of other people, for the sake of your neighbor, bearing your cross for your church, your family, and your friends, laying down your rights to lift up the needy and oppressed, doing something about the injustice all around us. That's what God values. I mean, how different would our plans be for the future if God's values become our priorities, making money, gaining for self, those would take a back seat. Then we will be driven by what's good. We will commit ourselves in trusting the Lord for our future. That's good. I think this is why James ends by saying, if anyone knows the good thing, literally, the good thing to do and doesn't do it for him, it is sin. What is the good thing for us to do, according to James? Well, it's it's allowing God to be God with our future. It's entrusting ourselves, our money, our jobs, our future to Him. 
I mean, it, it can certainly apply to God's other commands, right? If you know, if you know not to steal and you do it, or you, or you know this thing and, and you don't do it, then it's sin. But surrendering our future to God is the good thing in the context of James. When we don't do it, we sin. What has James told us about sin? James chapter 1, verse 15. When sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. This is why James warns the rich about the miseries coming to them in the beginning of chapter 5. They have devoted themselves to injustice and self-indulgence. You know what kind of future that is? That's a kind of future without God. When it's all about you and what you can get. You know, Jesus has a plan for your future too. And let me tell you, His plan for you is so much better than anything you can come up with. Jesus promises to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29. A future where you are not judged by others. Where you are not living in fear of what others might think of you. Because we have in Him a merciful lawgiver and judge. This judge, our King... He stepped down from His throne and He entered our broken reality. A place where even His own brothers talked down to Him and judged Him. Where Gentiles like you and me, most of us, uh, looked at Him with suspicion. Where Roman soldiers mocked and reviled Him. Where we crucified Him. He did it not to judge us, but to taste judgment for us. And give us a hope for tomorrow. A future hope of the restoration of all things. When He will be all in all. That's the good news, beloved. God is doing something about the brokenness of this world. Uh, Let me close with a few thoughts. In a culture like ours, it's hard to live without feeling judged. I'm up here. I know what it's like. We often feel like we're under the microscope, like people are always scrutinizing us, like we're walking on eggshells. Even in the church, this is true. We can feel this way. This is why so many of us are so insecure and why we can't be vulnerable and open with each other because we're afraid to be judged. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we judge people all the time. We even do it to our spouse, our children, our church, our community. So this shouldn't be surprising. Because we are discipled by a culture that sees judging people as an asset. For them, it's not a problem, but a virtue. There are television shows devoted to this, by the way. And it's part of the reason why our country is so polarized. And so we need to remember that one is the lawgiver and judge. He is one. He is our God. He's the God of Israel. He's the God of the church. We need to remember Him. 
that we might be patient in understanding each other when we make mistakes instead of making snap judgments about each other. Then, the way we interact with each other can be for improving, improvement, not humiliation. For each other's building up, not tearing down. I know that the future makes many of us nervous and anxious. That's why we're so obsessed with trying to control it. We're feverishly trying to shape it to our own will so we could be more comfortable so that we end up on top. But we often do it at the expense of other people, don't we? Beloved, the future doesn't belong to us. We want to control the outcome, but we can't. But, but that's okay. Because God has a better plan than we do. We can trust Him with our money. We can trust Him with our unmet expectations. We can trust Him in all of our problems, our divisions, with our cancer, even with our death, we can trust Him. He's the God of our future. You know, we have a habit of talking down to God when things aren't going the way we expect them to go. After God delivered Israel from Egypt, they still complained and grumbled because they were in a place that they least expected. They were in the wilderness. And so they started talking down to God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Right? They were putting God to the test. You know, God brought us out here to die. Surely He's not going to feed us in this wilderness. So they thought they had no future. But we know the story. They did have a future. It is through them the Lord Jesus Christ appeared, right? And so if you're nervous about your future, if you're anxious about tomorrow, how you're going to make money, how you're going to provide for you and your family, this is a meal for your anxious heart. God can not only spread a table in the wilderness, He can even spread a table in the presence of your enemies. Psalm 23. God is powerful enough to to give you good for your future. So the bread and the wine are a reminder that our ultimate future is safe in His hands because it's a foretaste of that everlasting meal that we will have with each other and with our God for all of eternity. And so we're not promised tomorrow, but we are promised forever. Amen? Let's pray. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You alone are worthy of all our praise, honor, and glory, except our offering of thanksgiving now and may it be pleasing in your sight. We thank you that you show us mercy even when we judge our brothers and our sisters. You show us grace even when we arrogantly try to plan our future without you. O Lord, grant us repentance and faith. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. We pray in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his name, amen.